Max Dawson remembers exactly where he was when he got the call. It was the summer of 2014. He was driving around Los Angeles. And while I was pulling out of my office's parking lot, I got a phone call from Survivor Casting. And she said, what are you doing right now? And I said, I'm going to a meeting. She told him to cancel the meeting. And she said, I need you to drive to us right now. We need to put you up in front of CBS and the network. And uh, I canceled my meeting. I rerouted my GPS. I drove over to CBS Radford. And they threw me right up in the meeting with Jeff and Nina Tassler, who was then the head of the network, a few other executives. And it turned out that they had the right opportunity. Max Dawson was cast on Survivor Season 30, Worlds Apart. He's a white guy. He lived in Topanga Canyon and has an outdoorsy, rugged surfer vibe. You know, sun-kissed, dirty blonde hair, tan, muscular. That season of Survivor was unique because it divided the castaways up by socioeconomic status. There were white-collar, blue-collar, and no-collar. White-collar is kind of what you'd expect. Execs, agents, buyers. I most recently worked at the largest Hollywood agency in the business, at CAA. The blue-collar tribe had a hairstylist and a guy who works in an oil field. And then the no-collar group didn't subscribe to a 9-to-5 lifestyle. They were nomads, artists, housewives. I have a, a project called Coconut Caravan, a circus-influenced but jitsu-themed coconut vending cart. Given Max's kind of bohemian vibe, you might assume he falls into the last camp. But you're wrong. Here's Max in a trailer for season 30. Up until about 18 months ago, I was a college professor at Northwestern University outside of Chicago, where I taught a class on Survivor, a class called The Tribe Has Spoken, Surviving TV's New Reality. Yep, in a bizarre twist of fate, Max Dawson went from teaching a class on Survivor to being on Survivor. His class at Northwestern went deep on the show and exposed how the industry itself made such a mega hit like Survivor possible. And you're probably wondering, of all of the shows to teach, why Survivor? Well, that's easy. He was a fan. You just, you write your PhD, you pretty much just become like a slave to your academic pursuits. And so here I am finding myself like really burnt out by this at a young age or relatively young age. And Survivor was an outlet and an escape. So I used to like get on the treadmill in my building and put on a Survivor DVD uh, and, and kind of just escape into the fantasy. Max liked teaching, but felt like it was kind of getting boring. He wanted to shake things up. So he invited castaways and producers from Survivor to his college course. His students loved it. One of those students was interning at the entertainment website AV Club and actually pitched a story on Max's class. And a few days after it ran, he got a call from Survivor Casting. Asking if I had ever considered being on the show. And while I had obviously like daydreamed while on the treadmill or, you know, in traffic about what would it be like to be out there on that island, I never thought I'm going to make a video. It just didn't seem like something that someone like me would ever do. But as soon as I heard from them, I realized this is something I could do. He was immediately thrown in the deep end of the casting process. First step was making an audition video and then just loads of paperwork. Yeah, it's surprisingly bureaucratic, right? 
and then finally culminated in them flying me out to Los Angeles. So for a week-long casting intensive, during which I was locked up in a hotel in Santa Monica, along with, I don't know, 20 or 30 other hopeful castaways. He was basically stuck in his hotel room, just waiting for them to pull him out for another interview. You're being prodded by medical uh, staff, psych testing, IQ tests. You do the Wonderlick, you do the MMPI. Jeff Probst, you know, puts you through the paces, the producers, casting directors. It was tedious and tiring. But sometimes they let him escape. They would take us out for gym and pool time for a few minutes every day. But during that time, we were expressly forbidden from even making eye contact with the other candidates. By the end of the week, the 30 or so people had been whittled down to about a dozen. And Max was one of them. At this point, they don't really say much. They said, fantastic, great, head home. Uh, Here's a note for your doctor about the shots you need to get. We'll be in touch about what happens next. Max didn't say this, but I have this image of him standing out on the curb outside the hotel with his bags fresh from casting saying, see you later, and just being like, wait, what just happened? Like he was ejected from a reality TV casting tornado. Anyway, Max didn't get cast right away. But in the summer of 2014, well, that was a different story. He rerouted his GPS to CBS and wowed them. From that point, it was a matter of weeks before I was on a beach in Nicaragua, uh, you know, having Jeff Probst say, come on in, guys. This is Spectacle, and I'm your host, Mariah Smith. This is Episode 3, How Survivor Revealed America's Tribalism. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Survivor premiered in 2000, 14 years before Dawson got that call. The premise of the show was like Lord of the Flies on the new millennium. Take a bunch of folks of different walks of life, stick them on an island with basically no resources, and see who makes it out alive. And to make sure there was some drama, they gave them a reason to backstab each other. A million bucks. Now, I didn't watch that first season, but my producer Joanna Clay did. I mean, the promotions for that first season were intense. The music is dramatic. You see B-roll of a tropical island, snakes slithering, people walking into the ocean with tiki torches. (laughs) Now, I'll be honest, because of the podcast, I have been catching up on the show. 
And there's like footage of a rat through night vision goggles, which I truly do not understand. Like, can't we see rats with normal vision or normal goggles? I don't know. But it's more dramatic with night vision goggles, Raya. Yeah, it feels very Indiana Jones. You know, definitely some cultural appropriation. And you hear Jeff Probst in the narration talk very existentially about everything. It's real world meets castaway on steroids. You are witnessing 16 Americans begin an adventure that will forever change their lives. 16 strangers forced to band together, carve out a new existence, totally accountable for their actions. They must learn to adapt or they're voted off. In the end, only one... We talked to Mike Bloom a bit about this too, and he's a writer and basically a survivor savant. I think the fact that they were going to go home every three days got a bit lost in translation to the point where I remember, at least, maybe this is my own misremembering, but I remember the gossip was like, oh, man, someone's going to die at the end of each episode. So, yeah, thank goodness no one dies. Yet. Seriously, Joanna, I mean, honestly, I hate to say it, but I think we would die. No, 100%. I mean, I would definitely die. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I know. But now we're digressing. We're digressing. (laughs) What was the original question? Well, I wanted to know what it was like for you watching that first season. Is there anything in particular that stands out? So I think for me, I will always remember that final tribal council when Richard Hatch was announced the winner. It's like Jaws dropped across the country because Richard was a villain. He strategized, he had alliances, but he showed that the way he played the game worked. But also, what made that episode so intense was Susan Hawke's very epic snakes and rats speech. Rich, you are a very openly arrogant, pompous human being. Yes, so Susan calls him an awful human, a loser. Yeah. But to be fair, she slams, like, everyone else as well. Like, she had these choice words for Kelly. But if I were ever pass you along in life again, and you were laying there dying of thirst, I would not give you a drink of water. I would let the vultures take you and do whatever they want with you, with no ill regrets. So at the very end of her spiel, Susan makes this analogy basically saying that they need to give in to Mother Nature. And let the snake eat the rat. We gotta touch on season one because it was huge for CBS. It was the most watched summer series since the Sonny and Cher Comedy Hour in 1973. Nielsen reported that nearly 52 million people watched the Survivor finale making it the most-watched primetime episode of any show in the year 2000. That's not including the Super Bowl. And the second-highest-rated finale in that decade, right behind Friends. Even the stuffy morning news hosts were obsessed. Bryant Gumbel hosted the after-show specials for the first few seasons. Survivor's amazing popularity has, of course, not gone unnoticed by the folks on Madison Avenue. 30-second commercials during last night's finale sold for $800,000, and several advertisers sought opportunities to get their products onto the show itself. Survivor was coming on the heels of the real world, but it was also coming at a time of immense change in the entertainment industry. 
The most popular shows of the day, like Friends, were enormously expensive to make. Remember, toward the end of the show's run, cast members were making like a million dollars an episode. Survivor creator Mark Burnett comes along with this idea to adapt a Swedish show called Expedition Robinson to American audiences. Joanna went down a rabbit hole researching this. So a lot of people listening might know Mark Burnett from The Apprentice, but before The Apprentice, before Survivor, he actually had some credibility because he had a show on the Discovery Channel. Yes. Oh, my God. It was called Eco Challenge. And I also think at this point he was nominated for an Emmy, too. Yeah. So I think those things definitely opened doors for Mark. Going to just call him Mark. We're on a first name basis. Um, But I think it was still really, really hard to get networks in, like truly invested in the concept. Totally. Because I think at this point, Reality TV was still super new, and most networks were just familiar with the scripted TV piloting process and that process of creating a TV show. Yeah, and the pilot process wasn't built for Survivor. Like, he's not going to just ship a whole crew and cast to Borneo to make one episode. He's like, I might as well produce the whole thing, have them there already. But that's asking a lot of a network. He sort of found an unconventional route to get the show on the air. Like, and this isn't something that typically happens in TV, but he was super hands-on with like the ads and stuff. So he knew the show itself wouldn't be expensive, but he needed to prove that the show would make money aside from being less expensive. So he started working with the ad reps. Yeah. Like he went to meetings with them. He goes to New York to meet with GM, to Minneapolis to meet with Target. He doesn't overpromise. He apparently asked for very average rates. The idea is to just get enough of a buy-in to get the network to say okay. And it worked. CBS said, let's do this. If the real world was about honing the art of story producing, Survivor was about making reality TV commercially viable. This is the sort of stuff Max actually taught in his class. How Survivor really created a new revenue model for TV. TV shows used to be built to last beyond their initial runs, to spend years in syndication. You know, like the reruns of Friends or Seinfeld that seem to play on every other channel all day long. So it's a time when we're starting to see the rise of DVRs and time shifting, culminating in streaming and Hulu and all sorts of online outlets that let you watch on your own schedule and to skip advertisements. So it becomes a lot more important to make shows that have immediacy, that you need to watch in real time. And since you don't have that long period to make up for the money you spent, you need to make these shows cheaply. So hence, early seasons of Survivor and reality TV in general are filled with product placements. There was an Outback Steakhouse-themed dinner, or Casa de Charmin slapped on the side of the outhouse. But this wouldn't have been compelling if Survivor on its own wasn't compelling. Because it taps into these really deep human narratives of, um, you know, 
being stranded on a desert island, Robinson Crusoe, Swiss Family Robinson, in the same period, Lost is a big hit. So it's a kind of cultural uh, foundational myth or, or foundational fascination, the idea of going back to nature, coupled with a very contemporary and of the moment set of reactions to changing economic and technological circumstances. Max talks about this survivalist going back to nature story. And yeah, people eat that shit up. I mean, Castaway with Tom Hanks came out the same year as Survivor. And will we ever look at a volleyball the same way again? I don't think so. R.I.P. Wilson. But Survivor, especially in its early days, was gritty. You are stranded, hungry, hanging out in rags and fishing for dinner. And it brings out the best and worst in people. People backstab, form alliances. They do whatever they have to do to win. That desperation is riveting, but it also has a dark side. I mean, what do we learn about Survivor? That's Raquel Gates, an associate professor of cinema and media studies at the College of Staten Island, CUNY. We learn that we don't live in a meritocracy. It doesn't matter how well you perform at challenges if People decide that you are not their kind. Uh, They don't want you on their tribe. They don't want you in their alliance. You get voted out. And that's a really sobering reality to kind of realize about our society. On its face, we might think it's a commentary on capitalism or Darwinism, but Raquel thinks it's more of an examination of our social structures, like American politics. As much as I think America is premised on this idea of the American dream and you can come here with nothing or be anybody and through hard work and determination be successful, you know, we know that's not the truth, right? We we know that there are systems of of privilege and oppression that give some people a boost and, and make it harder for others. It's a microcosm of America. And there's a couple of seasons that truly feel this way. One is Max's season, Worlds Apart, where they divide by class. Another is season 13, Cook Islands, where they segregated the castaways. I remember the season where they were divided by race. And at first, there were four tribes. There was the Caucasian tribe, the African-American tribe, the Asian tribe, and then the Latino tribe. After the second tribal council, they whittled down the four tribes into two mixed tribes. But then the host, Jeff Probst, offers them the chance to switch sides. We're going to do something a little different. I'm offering each of you the opportunity to mutiny and join the other tribe. Two castaways decide to jump ship. White castaways Jonathan and Candace decide to go back to the basically all-white team. And then by the end, you know, um, there were two tribes, essentially. Um, One was a multiracial tribe and one was the white tribe. Um, And I remember watching that season and thinking like, well, isn't this a metaphor for life, right? For Raquel and for probably most people of color watching, it felt symbolic. Sure, the idea to divide by race was a bit baiting. It's going to be controversial. It's going to draw viewers. At the time, some castaways said it felt kind of arbitrary. But to Jonathan, that white castaway, it didn't matter that the castaways on his tribe, A2, were watching out for him, giving him food. Because when push came to shove, he was like, oh, let me get back to my white people. Jeff Probst asked Ozzy, one of the Latinx castaways, what he thinks of them leaving. 
it doesn't really surprise me. If they don't have the backbone to stick with their tribe, then that's fine. I'm sure that they're going to get their base sooner or later. I remember watching thinking like, that's it, isn't it? You know, you have this truly multiracial tribe um, that's sort of representing interracial solidarity. And of course, they're not shocked when uh, the white dude goes back to the all-white team, um, because in some ways that feels like a metaphor for America of, you know, the ways that some folks um, will always double down on whiteness and choose whiteness, even if they don't realize that that's what they're doing. Um, but that seems to be the result time and time again. It made her root for the mixed tribe, I too. And so for me, that's why uh, the season was so pleasurable from that point forward, because you see I too, like the multiracial tribe, the underdogs with the smaller numbers, just kick the other team's ass every single week in challenges, like all the way up to the finals. The underdogs came out on top. Yul Kwan, one of the Asian castaways, was the winner. Dividing contestants by race was a clear ratings grab, but it was good to see representation on the show. A lot of people think of Survivor as an example of diverse casting in terms of demographics. You have Sue Hawk, a 39-year-old truck driver, or Rudy Bosch, a 72-year-old Navy SEAL. But up until that season, Survivor was a very white show. And so it meant something to see people of color on screen in season 13. But also, it would be overly simplistic to be like, oh, we watch reality TV because we need to directly relate to the cast or what's happening. No, we watch and root for people on these shows for a million reasons. Sometimes you just like the way they play on the show. I think in that way, Survivor is an interesting um, hybrid because you get the pleasures of identification like you would with candid reality TV, but then you also get like the pleasure of sports media and, and rooting for people. Not every sports figure that I'm interested in is somebody who I personally relate to. Um, sometimes I just, I like watching them play. Um, there are people on Survivor that I just really enjoyed watching them play that game. Max's season, Worlds Apart, is another favorite of Raquel's. Just seeing how the perceived class differences play out in the game. Like when Rodney has a pity party on the beach. He's on blue collar and a contractor from Boston. Washing dishes on my birthday. Nine miserable days left on this island that doesn't even grow coconuts or any fruits. Nothing. She has nothing here. Rodney is part of the blue collar team. And one of the things that the blue collar team is often talking about, at least early on in the show, is that like we're blue collar. We work for our money. We're not entitled. We work for everything that we get. And yet you have this clip of Rodney going off about essentially how he deserves something that he didn't earn in any kind of way just because it's his birthday. And there's um, kind of a deep irony in that, you know, like the, the disconnect between sort of what he says his principles are and how he actually understands what he should be getting in that moment. There was another aspect of the show that was striking to Raquel. Seeing her friend Max on the island. Yep, they're friends. They went to the same grad school. And in fact, they used to watch Survivor together. She actually had no clue he was going on the show. But thinking back on it, she was like, I did get a weird phone call a while back. I didn't know that it was a producer from the show. They didn't identify themselves as such. He enlisted me as a professional reference. And I thought that the questions that this 
prospective employer was asking me were very odd. Um, but, uh, but it all makes sense now, like when I realized it was about him going on the show. Yeah. What did they ask you? They asked me, did he get along with people? Was he generally liked? Um, could I talk about any conflicts that he had, um, you know, with with his peers, you know, and then he kind of went radio silent for a while and then he popped up on Survivor. So. so Max gets to Nicaragua and before production starts filming, the castaways are totally sequestered. This is Andy Daynart of Reality Blurred. He's interviewed lots of castaways. All the contestants are living together in a uh, space, sometimes in tents, sometimes in hotel rooms, um, but they are not allowed to talk to each other or interact with anyone. They do non-verbally interact. Uh, they're not supposed to, and they kind of start to form impressions of each other for sure during that time. He's been covering Survivor for over 20 years and has flown out a few times to interview castaways before a season starts when they're about to be thrust into this brand new world. They have no idea what they're getting themselves into. And I think what was really interesting for me to, was always to compare sort of what they said their game would be like versus what their game ended up being like. Because I think for all of us, we can say, I'm going to go into this situation and here's what I'm going to do. But you can't possibly know that. Uh, and you can't possibly predict all the different variables that are going to affect your life. And Max can totally relate to that. I mean, yeah, he was excited. He was a huge fan. He had taught the show. But when he showed up to the island, it was clear that he wasn't as prepared as he thought. I was coming from a life that had been pretty much focused on uh, head down academic achievement and scholarship. And suddenly I'm in a world with people who are very unlike me. And so being out there on a season in which there was one tribe that was specifically meant to embody blue collar, you know, red state America, and then uh, my tribe, the white collar tribe that was meant to embody managerial class <laughs> elites. It was a very eye-opening experience for me. He's a researcher and he kind of kept that media studies hat on. He studied the game for years. He wasn't going to show up without a plan. My plan was find the two people who seemed to be most on the outs, who would be most vulnerable, and offer them my loyalty and protection in exchange for theirs. And I followed through with that, formed an alliance with two women of my tribe. We uh, were able to prevail at our first tribal council. Um, but over time, I realized that making that sort of strong bond with two outsiders didn't put me in a position to move forward very easily. Sadly, that strategy actually led to his demise. Just like Andy predicted, Max realized watching the show from your living room is a lot different than being in it. There's so many moving parts. It was hard to juggle his strategy for the game with his relationship with the castaways and on top of that, his relationship with production. I mean, above all, this is a TV show. And producers had a strategy of their own. I had a producer take me aside at one point and say, Max, who are your favorite survivors? And I said, uh, Cochran and Penner. She said, well, what do they always do? And I said, I, I don't know. They were always great and confessional. She said, yes, but they always made sure they explained things while they were doing things. They, they never whispered. So if you're going to take Shireen away, I need you to kind of tell that you're going to take her away. 
talk to the camera, wait for the cameraman, let him get in position. So I was being coached to be a little more televisual. He started to get more attuned to that, to what production was looking for, thinking about what he'd say in confessionals or how he'd show more to the camera. And that turned out to be his downfall because he started becoming more oblivious to what castaways were doing around him. And you'd think someone like Max, you know, a relatively straight-laced guy who left a good job in academia, you'd think he might regret doing a huge reality TV show. But it's really the opposite. He said it's changed his life for the better. I used to hang out pretty much exclusively with brilliant but ultimately pretty boring academics who shared most of my political views. And now, um, you know, my friends uh, include a coconut vendor who wears feathers in his hair and a Texas oil man who chews tobacco and has a giant Psalm 121 tattoo on his back and, um, you know, artists and hippies and vagabonds and blue collar people, people from across the political spectrum. Um, It's been tremendously broadening in terms of my own social horizons. Survivor castaways are known to grow close after the show. They hang out. Some even get married. An ordeal like Survivor, while being by no means comparable to war, it's something that brings you together with the people you experience it with. And so outside of our season, I found myself becoming very close to people who I literally never would have met had I not been on a reality show. And same goes for them. That Texas oil man Max mentioned, he's pretty sure Max is his first Jewish friend. I don't think he had met a gay or a lesbian or a transgender person before he was on the show. In that respect, the social experiment of Survivor, I think, may not be as relevant on the show itself, but for the 500 or so people who have had the experience of being on Survivor, there is an amazing opportunity to take that social experiment to real life, where you now get to be a part of a sort of fraternity, sorority of people who are really, really extraordinary in one way or another. Everyone's on that show, either because they're extraordinarily talented, funny, sexy, athletic, or crazy. And a lot of people fall into that last category. What's that say about our culture, that we have to go on a reality TV show on a remote island to meet people totally different than ourselves? That's how segregated we are, how much we live in our own echo chambers. But that social experiment of the show didn't end on the island. It followed the castaways to their respective homes, where their lives and views got a little more complicated. They traded drama over immunity idols for controversial Facebook posts. Here's Max again. The challenge is now when we're in a moment of a real tremendous political and cultural crisis brought about by our political schism, it's very difficult for me to reconcile the personal relationships I found with some of these people with the absolutely abhorrent politics that I see them displaying on social media. Members of my cast have become anti-vax QAnon conspiracy theorists. Um, uh, anti-Black Lives Matter posts on their social media, denying the validity of COVID. It's absolutely troubling. And again, I never would have met these people. They never would have been real for me had I not been on a, quote-unquote, reality TV show with them. And maybe that's a benefit of the show, that it forces unlikely alliances. People have to listen to one another in a way they might never be forced to otherwise. 
and we get to be a fly on the wall. Survivor paved the way for every competition show that followed, including one you might not suspect, where the grand prize isn't a million dollars, but something priceless, a soulmate. The moment you've all been waiting for all night is finally here. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our next bachelor, Peter. With 24 seasons, countless spinoffs, and international versions, The Bachelor swept us off our feet when it debuted in March of 2002. The premise? Trap a bachelor with 25 potential wives in a faux Tuscan villa in the hills above Los Angeles. Week after week at tribal council, uh, I mean, rose ceremony, the women vie to stay and not be cast off to the stretch limo waiting in the driveway. That's next time on Spectacle. Spectacle is a production of Neon Hum Media. The show is hosted and co-produced by yours truly. Lead producer Joanna Clay reported and wrote this episode. Jonathan Hirsch and Shara Morris are our executive producers. It was edited by Catherine St. Louis. Our associate producer is Chloe Chobel. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. Thanks to Andrew Epen for his original music. Laura Bullard is our fact checker. And special thanks to Raquel Gates, Crystal Genesis, Vikram Patel, and Shauna Shiro. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at spectacle underscore pod. I'm Mariah Smith. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>